idea of individual intellectual property really didn't start until the 16th century. And patents, although there are very early patents, they're really privileges for trading, didn't really get started until the 18th, 19th centuries. And that's in a world of economic competition. So I think that human knowledge is a, is a collective. And you could say that almost everything we do is derivative. And we, in this particular age, really hold up individuality as something, an individual property, intellectual property, intellect, as something of very high value. It wasn't always like that. And I think there are lessons to be learned from the time when it wasn't like that. Pamela H. Smith is a professor of history at Columbia University and founding director of the Center for Science and Society, where she leads the Making and Knowing Research Project. Born and raised in a small, isolated California town, influenced by what she describes as a consistent, persistent and gentle math teacher father and an artistic and creative mother, serendipity led her to discover her love of the history of science in Wollongong University in Australia. And it was that experience that led her to commit her life to being a historian of science. In part two, we discuss how Pamela established the Making and Knowing Research Project, its purpose, and we discuss the origins of her most recent launch, the Digital Critical Edition called The Secrets of Craft and Nature in Renaissance France. Her team has painstakingly created an English translation of what might sound dry to many, but is a remarkable 16th century manuscript that contains over 900 recipes for making art objects, medical remedies and materials for the household and workshop. We discuss the parallels to the artisan and craft movement of today and what we can learn from the artisans of this period. The digital critical edition is an open source resource and is available to anyone to experiment and follow the recipes and directions. We also cover her views of education, failure, persistence, and the need to create a more evolved and sustainable economic model. I hope you enjoy, and if you do, share this extensive exploration and mind-expanding journey through the history of science with Pamela H. Smith. I want to get to your work and you have been leading the Making and Knowing project for some time, and it's here at Columbia. Could you discuss its genesis and explain to our listeners what it is? Mm -hmm. The Making and Knowing project comes out of my research on craftspeople, and it strives to really examine deeply the intersections between craft-making and scientific knowing. And... It's part, it's one of the research clusters of the Center for Science and Society, which I founded at the same time as the Making Knowing Project. And it's the center itself really looks at all kinds of different roles that science has in society. It tries to bring together natural scientists and and people from scholars and practitioners of the humanities and social sciences. So we're really trying to bring together disciplines, bring together these siloed areas of knowledge that are, I think, quite problematic for the 21st century university. So the Making Knowing Project does that in bringing together people from really all disciplines to study craft knowledge and to try to understand the kind of knowledge it is, how it is 
part of scientific knowing in the sense that experimental labs are, have technicians in them who need to become skilled, um, but also to try to understand the historical connection between craft knowledge and science, the beginnings of science, the scientific revolution. And let me just give you an example yeah, of what I mean by that. Good, yeah. yeah, The Royal Society, I mentioned before, founded in 1660 in London for the improvement of natural knowledge. It was founded by a group of people who were basically scholars, some of them civil servants, many of them at university, a few large merchants in there. So they were all people who were interested in the welfare of the nation. They drew upon several different sources, one of them being Francis Bacon, to formulate what they called a new philosophy. Now, what did that mean? They said this is going to be an active science, that is an active form of knowledge that will be positive and certain. Their model, the models at that time of positive certain knowledge were things like the exact um, sciences, astronomy, ge geometry and mathematics, but really geometry. Mm. I mean, geometry is certain because it's its axioms are already determined in advance. So, so those were their models of what certain science meant. Now, active, the active part of it meant actually engaging with nature, experiments. They had no idea what that meant. And so what was their first project as they founded the society with great fanfare and a history of the society already in 1667, which was really laying out the mission of the society? And so it was founded to great fanfare, but they really didn't have any idea what they were doing. So their very first project was to interview artisans. They called it the History of Trades Project, and they found it very difficult to interview artisans. But what they were doing in that is trying to figure out what is this active part of knowledge? Mm. How can we make knowledge that actually produces things? How can we formulate a method of making that knowledge that we can carry out as people of a different social and intellectual level from these artisans. And that is a really direct link in, or a direct kind of factor in the scientific revolution. So which, they were trying to deconstruct how artisans worked? Yes. And what their craft skills were? Correct. And yeah. to document it? To document it and to try to draw, they thought that if they documented enough of it, they could try to draw out of it general principles. Huh. That's really interesting because it's not really an exact science. No. I mean, the problem with actually engaging with matter is that it's incredibly messy. It is an emergent form of knowledge, yeah. and especially in a period when materials weren't standardized. And so the particularity of the world, which is what craftspeople are experts in, harnessing that particularity of the world, making things again and again, beautiful things and useful things again and again, is something that those early new philosophers wanted to capture, was mm. that ability to, that skill, that ability to really play on all of those particularities of nature and create things, engage with nature to create things that are useful, beautiful, desirable. Is it fair to say that that process whereby artisans 
fuse their, let's say, creative craft skills with domain experts in other areas of science and technology is just a universal ongoing process as part of human development. I mean, because I, I can think of examples today where artisans are pushing the boundaries of their creativity and borrowing from science and technology, whether mm -hmm. it be use of code, and using algorithms in today's world. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's there is a continuum in human history or in human engagement with the world. I mean, humans live in the world, and they have always had to engage with the things of nature, with the environment, really in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of engagement with nature, which is a very basic human capacity, I think, existed bronze making, glass making, the bronze hearth. It existed in the artisans' workshops in Italian cities. And it exists today in experimental laboratories, in natural scientific laboratories. So it has always existed. It takes different institutional forms mm -hmm. Um, but it is one of the human capacities which is powerful, both good, ill, mm, and yeah. is definitely a part of creativity when we talk about creativity today. Because I've heard you talk about the importance of imitation in learning and knowing mm. and what we can imitate from the past as we make progress in the future. And obviously, Picasso said, genius steals. <laughs> is it something that we should be encouraging more people to do? I mean, I know that lots of the terms like pieces of work, whether it be in film or writing or art, it's mm. derivative, is deemed a derogatory term. Mm. But if imitation is an important part of the building blocks of invention and creation, then why are we not encouraging more people to embrace imitation? Well, the idea of intellect individual intellectual property really didn't start until the 16th century. And patents, although there are very early patents, they're really privileges for trading, didn't really get started until the 18th, 19th centuries. And that's in a world of economic competition. So, so, so you're saying that that could be a barrier to, to barrier to progress? Oh, I think it can be. Mm. I think that, I mean, it's a complicated question. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is that Human knowledge is a, is a collective, and you could say that almost everything we do is derivative. And we, in this particular age, really hold up individuality as something, an individual property, intellectual property, intellect, as something of very high value. It wasn't always like that. And I think there are lessons to be learned from the time when it wasn't like that. I mean, open source, everything was going to be, it was so promising. And then it was very quickly absorbed into proprietary forms. And that's about partly about our economic system. And it's partly because the idea of the individual has become, really since the Renaissance, the power of the individual, the genius of the individual, the intellect of the individual has become such a value, valued concept in our society. 
I've heard you talk about Bernard Palissy and what he said could not be learned from writing and can only be learned without practice and experiencing a thousand affiliations. He's such an interesting character, Bernard Palissy, a 16th century mm. potter, glass painter, surveyor. He was an artisan, trained as an artisan. He wrote, as actually many of his artisanal colleagues did at that time, partly to advertise their own skills, partly to see themselves as authors and a practitioner of the liberal arts. He, unlike almost any other artisanal writer at the time, he really laid bare the intellectual challenge he was making to theory, he called it. Um, so one of his books is a dialogue between theory and practice. And theory is trying to draw out of practice his secrets. That is, the, the landowner trying to draw out of the artisan or the elite trying to draw out of the artisan his secrets. And practice says, even if I had a thousand reams of paper, even if I wrote down everything, you still would not understand it because... You haven't had the experience. You haven't had all of those failures. Mm -hmm. And so what he's saying there is that practice, that, that artisanal practice is about experience, 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 fail, 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 extend your experience, do it again, try it a different way. That, that improvisation, that persistence, that just plain practice is what's this knowledge mm -hmm. consists in, and that you can't get it just through writing. And that's very true. No one could learn to ride a bicycle by reading about it. I'm going to talk about your work that you're about to launch called the Digital Critical Edition. But before I do, you mentioned failure there. And you also talked about how when you were brought up at school in the, the curriculum of the, the time, that tests didn't happen. It was all about creativity. Do you think we're we're doing a disservice to our our children and our students by making them fearful of failure? Even though that we live in a, a culture where fail fast, fail cheap, and startup mm. culture embraces failure, but the reality mm. is, are we creating a culture of failure? It feels like it. A culture and of fear of failure. Yeah, I, should, I, should I mean, say. and partly, I mean, I see it from my perspective in higher education and. The, the competition for places at university has become so fierce because the, the number of the population of university bound both undergraduates and graduates has increased so much and the places in the universities have, have not increased over the past 30 years. So the competition is just fierce. And students are so afraid to take risks. They're so afraid of failure. And I just think that's a terrible thing. I think that the kind of freedom to explore this in school is where you have it. And if you're so concerned about failing and so early professionalized, I just, I see it as such a loss for them yeah. and maybe a loss for all of us. I think so. I mean, most definitely, particularly as we enter a world of artificial intelligence and the imperative to embrace our innate creativity, to encourage curiosity and to push people to places they wouldn't otherwise go. I hope so. I is, hope is, it means... Is our only way yeah. of humanity having a role in, in, a, in an AI, an increasingly AI-driven world. 
Yeah, I hope that that's what AI will do. I mean, in terms of freeing us mm -hmm. to um, be human. I, I don't know. No, if you listen yeah. to uh, Uval Noah Harari's speech last week at Davos, where he talked about the increasing risk of digital dictatorships and digital colonies, mm. it doesn't bode well for us. But yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll skip that one just now. Can you explain to our listeners what the Digital Critical Edition is and how that builds on your Making a Knowing project? Mm. Well, we're just about to launch it. It will be well, actually, probably by the time this podcast is published, it will be published yes. on February 6th. I said the Making Knowing Project explores intersections between craft making and scientific knowing. And we do that through really deep focus on an object of research. And our object of research for the past five years has been this fascinating, remarkable collection of about 900 technical recipes for art objects and technical objects. So what I mean by that are sculpture, painting, cannon casting, all kinds of things. It's a French late 16th century anonymous text. It's now in the uh, National Library of France, the Bibliothèque Nationale, and um, has been since the 17th century. It was probably finished by about 1588. Anyway, it's, it's like Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. It is full of observations and jottings on artisanal techniques, on, on daily life, on ideas for doing things, and in, in not so much new inventions. He's not the the author practitioner, as we call the anonymous author of this text, is not thinking up a lot of new things, but really is wants to write them down. Very complicated process of writing down. It's a mess of a text, but in any case, invaluable for artisanal knowledge. If you're interested in finding ways to understand the influences that the constant experimentation of the craft workshop had on the development of laboratory sciences, this is a great text for that. Because you really have so little insight into craft practices through writings, right? But this is like unfiltered in some ways, which makes it hard to read. Anyway, the Digital Critical Edition is a verbatim transcription of this manuscript, an English translation, and then a entire critical commentary, explanation of what the terms are, explanation of the techniques, and it will be openly accessible online. It will, by mid-May, we hope, have more than 120 essays that explain the whole manuscript. It has a all kinds of resources to really bring the artisanal workshop to life. Bring this sounds, sounds like someone's life, life. This, whoever this person was, it sounds like their life work. Yes, it's very hard to know exactly how it came into being. And it's definitely one person. Uh, yes, it's one hand. It's almost only one handwriting. There's a scribe involved. There are a couple of different handwritings. Hard to know whether they're the same person or not. In any case, it was the interesting thing is, which just goes to show how interested people were in this kind of practical knowledge at the time, late 16th century, is that it was collected by a very old high noble at the court of France, and that's how it came into the Library of the King, now the National Library of, of France. 
So the digital critical edition will make openly accessible this remarkable manuscript for the first time. It will be very, very useful to all kinds of scholars, to artists, to I hope that I think the general public will be interested in how to train a dog in the late 16th century, for example. Oh, it covers that. Yeah. Yeah, it's oh, very interesting. I thought it was just Hold a art- piece of cheese under your armpit. Art- really? <laughs> yes, really. <laughs> well, I'll try that with my, but, my long-haired dachshund. <laughs> I thought it was all craft and, and artisanal-based, but it's, it is more than that. Then, practice. So. Practical knowledge. Practical, I mean, how to train practical, a dog yeah. is also practical knowledge. So but have, it's, your, yeah. have your students been taking these recipes and... and creating examples of the work. And that's been one of the most wonderful parts of the whole thing. It's been a huge collaborative endeavor. The entire transcription and translation were grad-sourced, as we call it, crowd-sourced by graduate students learning to read Middle French handwriting as they transcribed and translated the manuscript. We had five paleography workshops, and then each year, each semester for the last five years, we have taught a course called Craft and Science in which graduate students actually reconstructed, recreated the processes. First, they had to figure out what the processes were and then try to find instances of them in museum objects. And then they recreated those processes and those objects. So we have a lab full of fascinating 16th century Mm -hmm. art objects. And... um Beyond the, I mean, these objects, and we'll share some of the photos in the in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But they range from creating insects. Yes, life casting. That was something uh, that was of great interest at the time. Also, creating hybrid animals. So we have in the lab rats with wings. That was one of the recipes in the manuscript. And why? Why? Why those objects? Why trying to? preserve an ephemeral object in, you know, of a butterfly or a flower or a lizard in metal, Mm -hmm. life casting. Why do that? Why create these hybrid objects? Because at that time, people were very, very interested in the relationship of the human hand to nature. That is the, the potential of the artifice of the human hand in competition, in imitation of the artifice of nature. How did the human hand imitate nature? How did the human hand maybe surpass nature? That was an area of great interest, concern, and people collected these objects, which really led to, generated conversations on that topic. Mm -hmm. So hybrid objects, ephemeral objects preserved in metal, flowers preserved for the whole year, beautifully colored. All of those things spoke to the human capacity in its engagement with nature. And that's one of the most enduring kinds of things, I think. That was a period, the 16th century, where it was of incredible interest. Mm -hmm. Today is, in many ways, the same. I suppose as well... um alongside what was happening and things like the the upheaval of old religious orders and the Reformation. It's people, individuals, believing that our individuality and our agency can have have impact on the world and that we're not just God's creatures, that we can actually... Maybe there was a sense 
emerging at that time that we weren't just focused on the world beyond us, as I think you said earlier, but actually focusing on how can we engineer the world to be in our... How can human beings have, you know, what what are the capacities of human beings? Mm-hmm. That was certainly a question that was being asked at that time. However, one of the answers, I have to say in that regard, that one of the answers was that we should focus on the world because that is God's first creation. Mm-hmm. And that by focusing on the world in that way, we will solve these terrible rifts that were happening in Christianity. Mm-hmm. So, I- yeah. Now that you're launching the Digital Critical Edition and all the essays, how can, whether it be teachers and parents, embrace this and use this as an educational tool or even as a practical tool to improve making and knowing? So one of the aims of this whole exercise of publishing this incredible manuscript that talks about how to make things is to try to encourage that kind of maker sensibility, not so much the maker sensibility of the digital printer, for example, but the but rather the actual working with the hands, because I do think that that is an area where that could use a lot of support. If I think, especially in the United States, of the the state of the skilled trades and our educational system with regards to the skilled trades in this country, it's just It really needs support, and I think we need to get back to some of those principles that were in force uh, maybe in the 60s in in many states in the United States of having woodshop and art classes and those kinds of activities which have, to a certain extent, fallen by the wayside in the testing regime culture. So uh, the Digital Critical Edition has all of these ways of doing things, so encouraging this kind of how-to sensibility and and making and valuing handwork. I think that we... I would like to think that out of projects like this that are focused on what is craft knowledge and there have there are other examples of writers who have written about the value of craft knowledge for example but out of this moment which maybe is also generated by maker culture and the making move the maker movement that we will come to embrace a or or look for maybe really look for a new model of economic sustainability sustainability that w- well not just sustainability but but really that that can include skilled handwork because i i know you've talked i've heard you talk in the past about indian handloom weavers yeah. okay and we're obviously there's a lot of discussion and i mentioned mm-hmm. davos last week about beyond capitalism mm-hmm. and that we have to think beyond the the standard bottom line mm. and that we can't i mean clearly in the, in the with the world we're, we're entering into the next 7 to 10 years around the environment we can't sustain the growth at level and the population mm. levels we've got we mm. have to almost mine the past and go back and understand how can we create one materials that mm-hmm. might not 
be damaging to the planet. Mm -hmm. Economic models that are more respectful of the planet mm -hmm. and that create societies and communities more bound together in their mm -hmm. craft than a globalized society driven by outsourced mm -hmm. and, and soon to be outmoded economic models. Mm. Could you maybe just reflect on that and, the, and, and maybe just mention a bit about the Indian handlovers mm -hmm. because I, I think it's an interesting story. So I think that there are ways that we can think about how with the, the, the significance that craft and handwork has in the modern world. And this really came home to me when I got to know handloom activists in India. There are a really sizable number of handloom, highly skilled handloom weavers in India. They produce quite a lot of the textile output of a country that textiles is a very large percentage of their GDP. And I realized that here is a long existing craft, still part of the economy, and it has very interesting roots, which I could go into, but I won't right now. But, you know, here is a, an activity. People are highly skilled. They're very proud of their work. It's a sense of real dignified labor if they could just make a living at it. And that's what I would like to see, really, is a valuing of that kind of labor and a new model of the economy that would make possible the, that kind of dignified labor, that being taken as a value. So mm -hmm. that's one way in which I can see craft as having a place in a new model of the economy. And I think it's not just India. I think that there are a lot of people, say, in who have gone to Detroit because yeah. it's, it has possibilities of living differently. So that's one way. I also think just in terms of sustainability in agriculture in particular, that there were many, many methods in the past that would allow us to pursue a more sustainable agriculture. I mean, monocropping and the kinds of pesticides that it necessitates, I think I'm not an expert in this, but there are certainly models from the past that we could draw on in terms of more sustainable ways of going about agriculture. Now, of course, the big, the elephant in the room, of course, is capitalism. So, and industrial agriculture, it's a, it's a very hard problem. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that those, those handloom activists in India and the, the, the sort of handcraft activists, more than handloom, there are, there are many more handcrafts that are still alive or barely alive in India. And there are intellectuals in India and, and advocates in India who are really trying to figure out this new economy. Mm. But within the model of development, industrial development, which holds sway, it's pretty impossible to get taken seriously. And that's what I would really like to see happen is that economists in, you know, in the United States begin to take this seriously and begin to think about the position, what is work to human identity? I mean, I was saying to another guest the other day that if Adam Smith and John Maynard Keynes were alive today, they, they wouldn't be just espousing their their theories 
on economic economic models that were written two centuries ago, three centuries ago, they would be looking at today's world and saying, what's the economic solution for a mm. world that's clearly broken? Mm. Mm. And that's what we need to find. We yeah. need to find these leading economic economic thinkers. So who are really mm, responding to a may, world that's broken? Yeah, maybe maybe there are in the halls of this great institution. Well, there are there are some possibilities, but I don't think they've thought of craft as uh, an answer. And that's what I, I would really think, like. I to don't get, think it can be done in isolation. Everything no, has to be. That's uh, true. And I think it has to be yeah. a, a practical theory rather than just mm-hmm. a pure economic theory. So they very have much to so. be bound yeah. together. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that. Economics as a discipline is changing. I mean, there is such a thing now called behavioral and, eco- and course, experimental yeah, yeah, economics, yeah. and that's a huge, for me, mm-hmm. step forward. It's not simply an abstract science. Yeah, so it's it's exciting. I'm conscious of time. Yes. I'm just going to quickly ask you serendipity. About serendipity, what chances or chance encounters, happy accidents, or serendipitous events have occurred that defined the direction of your journey? Certainly taking history of science at the University of Wollongong is one serendipitous. It's a pretty big one. Yeah, it's a big one for my my trajectory. Or could even go further back and say your father's decision to take a two-year yeah, right. sojourn in, in Wollongong. <laughs> well, that's the thing is it looks so ill-advised if you had stepped back. Yeah. But, oh, who knows? <laughs> yeah, okay. I was going to ask you about curiosity and mm-hmm. creativity, but I think mm-hmm. you're clearly a very curious and creative person, and it's at the core of what you're doing, so we don't need to cover that. If you were given the keys to the White House to change something in relation to the education system, to improve the future opportunities of the youth today, what would you change? As I said, the skilled trades, they yeah. need a lot of support in this country. Yeah. I think that creativity only comes out of diversity. I think that creativity only comes out of this incredible melting pot that the United States has been and that that is essential to continue. I mean, we need that kind of diversity. We need to, as we have, and but need to do even more now, we need to celebrate that diversity. We need to celebrate that melting pot. Great answer. Quick, quick four questions. What principles do you stand by? Certainly persistence. Persistence, hard work. I'll definitely back you up on those. Yeah. Um, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but did turn out to have been the right decision? I think in some ways to go to graduate school to start this whole adventure. Mm-hmm. I had I really had little idea of what I was getting into and then when I arrived it was it was quite a shock as it is for many students. I mean, I see them every day and it's it's a hard road. I mean, it's a wonderful wonderful thing. You get to be a student for your whole life, but that means the more you know, the less you're sure of, and that's a pretty vulnerable position to be in. And that's the way most academics, I think, feel, is the more they know, the less they actually know. But that's a good position. I think it's I a mean, great position. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it certainly keeps you humble. Mm-hmm. And that's thirsty. a good thing. And thirsty. And curious. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Where do you go to uh, when you need space to think? Well, definitely I go into my work. I read a book. I do some more research. And But I really like being outdoors. I really do a lot of thinking when I'm jogging or when I'm walking. Okay. We added a new question 
and you can skip it if you want. Mm. But if something comes to mind, just say it. What's the one problem worth solving? I've got to say sustainability. I've got to say climate change. Okay. What's your perspective on failure? I hate failure myself. I I mean, one always hates to fail or fail publicly, but I think it's such a useful experience. We fail, we go on, we learn how to do it better, we learn how to do it differently. So if there were one thing that I could change for, among my graduate students, I would love if they felt bold, if they felt like they could be bold. And I'll just give you one example, which is that... In the lab course, in the craft and science lab course, in which they do all of this reconstruction of 16th century recipes, technical recipes, they have to learn how to separate eggs. And many of them have had no experience of separating eggs. They uh, don't seem to do very much cooking, but (laughs) in any case. And so they are afraid to start. They're afraid to bake that egg. And I would love it if they just tried it. And so they're afraid of failure and just afraid of breaking um, an egg. It came up in a conversation. I can't remember if it was in an interview, but I think one of the things that that should be embraced by all employers is a universal standard for resumes or bios or CVs, which has a new section on it, which talks about what you've learned from your failures. Mm, That's great. Yeah. And if we did that, that would start Mm. to encourage people to fail. Well, I have to say that we always ask candidates, uh, you know, for office positions and so on, staff positions, what have been challenges and how have you overcome them? Yeah. So it's sort of the same. But yes, I do think as a, as a line on a CV, it's an interesting point. How do you keep up with technology? I ask my kids or my students. Okay, that's a good one. <laughs> Who has made you reevaluate yourself? Certainly my children, certainly my students. Yeah, Yeah, every day. It's great to be in education in that regard. Keeps you young or or maybe it just makes you feel very old all the time. What would your advice be to someone just about to graduate and some of your students that might have a dream, Mm. a grand ambition, but Mm. being told, don't go there, it's impossible? Hold on to it. You don't really know what's impossible. I mean, just hold on to it. Okay. Just hold on to your passion. What's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. What's the uh, recent best Netflix or Amazon series, or Apple series, I should say now, that they've launched their channel, or Disney? And so the list goes on. I have no time to watch series, but I have to say, I do watch some. I love documentaries, okay, of course. Okay, what, what documentary? But, yeah, but I, I, Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice. Oh. Everybody should watch it. Everybody should go to the museum, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, otherwise known as the Lynching Memorial in um, Montgomery, Alabama. This is uh, Netflix? I think so. Final question. Who should we interview next? A handloom activist from Hyderabad, Uzrama. She is an incredibly interesting, creative, trained as a goldsmith. She is really trying to figure out the problem of how to make handloom weaving sustainable and 
economically viable. Okay, we might not get to Hyderabad. So is there anyone else? Because we tend to do them face to face. So another just absolutely wonderful artist is Elizabeth King, a sculptor. Her last exhibition, I believe, was Radical Small at Mass Mocha. Oh, we like that place. We could go up there. Just a wonderful... Well, she's in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, she's just a a wonderful person. A film was made about her by Olivia Stone. It's a really lovely, lovely movie. We'll we'll follow up on that one. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.